Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom, God's Word declares, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Last week we took the time to look at the broadest understanding we could of the statement in Jude that false teachers... Dreamers, he calls them, speak evil of what is glorious, or the glorious ones. We're going to bring that narrower and narrower this morning, as we are directed by Jude to do so, because of the example he gives us in the very next verse, in verse 9. We looked at verses 8 and 10 last week, and really examined that these are speaking evil of things they do not really know, they don't really understand, they do not have the wisdom to grasp them, because wisdom begins with trusting in the Lord, and they don't trust in Him, they trust in themselves, and they're not interested in glorifying God, they're interested in bringing glory to themselves. And so the fear of God and the trust in the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding, that is where it is. And so we looked into Proverbs and other passages and James to look at the necessity to speak properly and honoring of things that are glorious that God in God and of God's agents and God's work, God's will, God's word, uh, requires us to trust in him, requires us to have a fear of him, to recognize that every word spoken we will be accounted for, uh, particularly of those who take up this word to teach it. And so we have a directive, really, uh, that we've taken the very broadest sense of what it means to speak evil of the glorious ones, or the, what is glorious. In the narrowest sense, we come to another difficult verse in Jude, um, because we again struggle with what is his source material for this, because it is beyond our Old Testament that is in your Bible. And it's going to lead us into some other 
area of, of uh, source material, and uh, we're going to try to do that very carefully, um, but we won't, don't want to get so caught up in that that we miss the force of what Jude is trying to communicate. He's giving us an example of what he means of speaking evil of dignitaries, of those with authority, those that have a measure of God's glory attached to them. And when we begin to think of authority in that manner, and I think that is a the highest, most critical way I can describe it, is that when you carry authority, you are carrying a measure of God's glory. Whether you yourself are a follower of Jesus Christ or not, everyone, everyone who carries a little authority of any measure is a carrier of an aspect of God's glory, whether it be in the home of mom, dad, or of husband, whether it be within a church setting, social setting, uh, and even on a private, very individual levels we're going to see this morning, if you are carrying authority, God has granted that to you, you are to some measure, representing his glory on earth. Before we get into that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and giving us your word, and we, and not only your word, but your spirit to direct us in not only understanding your word, but of a, bringing it into our very lives, that you not only reveal your truth, but you reveal our hearts and our thoughts and you divide us asunder, soul from spirit, bones and marrow. And Lord, we want to lay ourselves open to just such activity of your spirit through your word this morning. And again, this is well beyond the capacity of, of this preacher, and so we rely entirely upon you to work this hour in our midst to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to Jude, verse 9, and we are confronted with an event that if you go through your Old Testament, you will say, I can't find that there. We can find, certainly, that at the end of Moses' life, he was taken up in, by God and directed to a mount so that he could look over the Jordan River and see the land of promise, Israel. He could see the promised land, Canaan at the time, and he was not allowed to enter Canaan because of his disobedience on one occasion. Kind of reminds you of the significance of what we talked about last week, that a prophet of God has incumbent upon him a requirement for complete, utter obedience or rejection. God rejects that ministry and Moses, I think, is one great example that if you take God's word and you then add your own to it uh, and, you're, you're, and take it more farther than he wants it to, that there's a consequence. And Moses paid that consequence. He wasn't allowed to go in the land of Canaan. So for 40 years, he was in the wilderness with everyone else and the same, under the same hand, really, because just as... Only two men were told that would survive and enter the promised land. He wasn't one of them. It was Joshua and Caleb. 
And so we come to uh, this event where Moses has seen the promised land and it's time for him to pass and, and uh, there's not going to be a grave. Israel's going to mourn for 30 days. They're going to take a month to mourn his loss. Uh, and they're not moving, they're not, and so just to give you a significance of what would have happened if they had had his body and had an opportunity to inter it, intern it himself, uh, of what would have, a, a, how that site would have been treated. And so in keeping, I think, with the character of Moses as the humblest man on earth at the time, uh, is that I don't want to be worshipped. Uh, you need to be worshipping the Lord God of Israel and no man. And so, and this even comes out in Jesus' ministry when the Pharisees are contending, we, you know, we have Moses, we have the law and the prophets, and still that attachment to Moses, Moses, Moses. Uh, and God says, no, I'm not going to let you have his body. You're not going to bury him somewhere. You're not going to have a shrine to Moses. But what we don't have is this record of Jude, verse 9. <clears throat> I said, where did Jude get these ideas uh, let's read Jude verse 9 before we go any further. It says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And so this isn't really in our account, and uh, it leads us to another document. And that document, unfortunately, we don't have the text of uh, in its fullest form. Uh, really not at all. Uh, you will see an apocryphal book that's called The Assumption of Moses. You'll also hear a book called The Testament of Moses, which is really a record of Moses' last words. Uh, it's also called the, um, not the prophet, uh, basically the prophecies of Moses, where he shares with Joshua his last instructions and also gives over uh, some apocalyptic information uh, and, and shares that of the end of the age and of Christ's coming and things like that. Joshua then responds and says, I'm not up to this. There's no way. Who can replace Moses? And, uh, and then it, the Testament of Moses book really ends there uh, in what we have in, in fragments but what uh, we know it went on to do, either through another writer or later edition, uh, we know that it went on and described this event. How do we know that when we don't have the paperwork in front of us? Well, we know that because a lot of the early church fathers, just like Jude, Origen, for example, and others, quoted extensively from this source, and they quote this dialogue. Between of what happened with the body of Moses. And again, not within the purview of what we have accessible to us, uh, but it is what's something that the first century had church had available to them. And so Jude quotes out of that. You might say, well, what's the background? Well, I hesitate to give it too much to you. Um, I don't know that I have the liberty to do that. But there is um, a contention between Michael and an archangel who was sent by God, angels, this means messenger, sent by God, and he is the defender of Israel. That is one of his designations as an archangel. And so uh, that he's going to go down, and it is his responsibility to bury the body of Moses. And in this account that we have given to us 
again, by putting together quotations from early church fathers who are quoting from the same source that apparently Jude has, uh, we have concluded that uh, the argument was really the devil claimed a right to that body um, based upon the fact that Moses had murdered somebody and that Michael's response to him was not to engage him in argumentation over what rights he has, it's simply this declaration, the Lord rebuke you. That is that your argument isn't with me, I'm not going to engage you in this, it's for the Lord to rebuke you. I'm not going to set you straight. I'm, gonna not, I'm not going to sit there and try to explain to the evil one the foundation of God's forgiveness, of, of, of uh, righteousness that comes not by works of the law but by faith. I'm not going to engage in all that. We really just have a singular response by Michael the archangel saying the Lord rebuke you as they contend over the, the burial of Moses of who has the right to do that. And, of course, Satan takes that opportunity to engage it. Now, if this bothers you, um, it is not unheard of or unprecedented in the Scriptures. Uh, We have uh, an interference, if you want to call it that. We have, really, a a warfare uh, in the book of Daniel where, again, archangel sent down can't get to Daniel can't get to Daniel, can't get to him. You say, how can he not get to him? Well, the angel says, there was a war. They don't want me to have access here. And that there had to be some help applied. And begins to help us understand, I think, in our view of this world and its ownership, that while we recognize God as the creator, sustainer of all that exists, he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, He is Lord over heaven and earth, Um, yet for this season, uh, particularly and really since the fall, since the curse, and particularly since Christ's work on the cross and his ascension, this is a place where Satan does have some power and authority that is probably beyond really our appreciation of how much he carries uh, even when we get into Revelation chapter 12, we have the angels at war with the Satan and his enemy and his allies, Satan and his demons. And they can't get the victory until the blood of Christ comes into play. The sacrifice of Christ comes into play and they have the victory and Satan and his angels are cast out and have no further access to heavenly realms. And so this morning we read a little earlier out of the temptation of Christ. And I want to take you there to Luke chapter 4 to again reiterate this idea that Christ did not contradict. In no manner did Christ really set Satan straight. In fact, we almost wish he would have. Don't you? Don't you just wish that Jesus would just bam, 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 bam and just take Satan to task over each one of these the foolishness of it and the ridiculousness of it and the falsehood of it, the error of it. But what is important this morning is the brevity and the directness of Jesus' response to Satan here. But for the time being, let's look at the second temptation in uh, 
Verse 5 says, The devil took him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, I don't know about you, but I really, really, really do not like that verse. I would really appreciate if Jesus would just tear it apart one statement at a time. One word, one word, one word. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't challenge the, the, the thing that's posited to us. He doesn't, he doesn't engage it at all. Uh, rather, he just says, no, I'm going to worship the Lord your, uh, my God, and him only shall you serve. He says, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't say, oh, that's nonsense. Don't you know that I created all this? He doesn't engage him at all in any manner except through a direct, shut-the-door, succinct statement. Quoting something that you have available to you, the Bible. But I want you to notice Satan's understanding of his place here on earth. He says, I'm in control of the nations. I have authority here. And I can extend that authority to whoever I want. Now, is that authority permanent? No. It is, is it complete and, and, and full? No. But it does exist. It is a tenuous authority that is, that is granted to him again uh, according to God's purposes, but it is there. And so when you read a passage like Jude 9, you say, what's going on here? How can there ever be uh, an equal, anything close to being an equal engagement between Satan and Michael the archangel where the archangel just says, the Lord rebuke you. Let, let God take care of this. Uh, let God close your mouth. We need to really kind of measure ourselves of whether we really understand the evil one that we're up against in this age, in this place. That he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I've watched, and you've watched enough nature films to know that even a powerful lion, when he approaches a herd, will always go after not the strongest, biggest animal. He will usually go after the slow one, the weaker one, the one that might already be in distress somehow, or a very young one. Do they have the capacity to bring down the big ones? Yeah, he's a lion. Every now and then they do. But their tendency is to find the weak ones. And I would contend that the weak ones are those that are foolish enough to think that Satan is someone to be trifled with. That we can just play a game with him. That he does not have the authority and the power that God says he has here on earth. And so if Michael the archangel is already in this condition, this state, that he's not about to go toe-to-toe in argumentation with the devil, 
who we think we are. And in fact, Jesus Christ himself here in the temptation, and, and we see here in Luke, and you can see it also in Matthew, the extended, uh, this is probably the most extended passage of that. He is consistently responding to Satan, and I believe not only on his own benefit, but for our benefit, that he is responding in the same manner that we have an opportunity to respond, and that is how well do you know your Bible? Now, I've heard a lot of preachers say a lot of ridiculous things with regard to their encounters with the evil one. And they call him silly names and they act as though he has no power and that all you have to do is rebuke him. When the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that resistance is not based upon your own character. It's not based upon uh, some innate power you have. It's not based upon using some formulary of magic words. It is formed essentially upon your knowledge of God's word. That our response in resisting the devil is to bring to mind and to bring into focus in our life the scriptures. So when you are encountering temptation by the evil one and you are powerless because you are ignorant of God's word, you are the weak one in the herd and you will be brought down. The Bible says that Satan wants to devour you. He wants to consume you. You want to be strengthened? You want to be mature? You want to be that one that Satan doesn't really want to mess with? then I suggest you get out your Bible, read it, memorize it, meditate upon it, make it a daily reality in your life. That when you encounter the evil one in temptation or in an adversarial role, that you are prepared as Christ to respond with Scripture. The Bible says, the Lord says, the Lord says, when Michael the archangel comes to the devil and says, the Lord rebuke you, you have the word of the Lord available to you. And it is the manner in which you resist the devil. But the question is, do we engage him? And some of these foolish Jewish people, just like some foolish people today, and they called themselves exorcists. That's what they called themselves, that they would go around and and they had varying degrees of success. Um, most reports are that when Jesus talked about a demon being cast out and it goes off into lonely places and he says, oh, why don't I just go back and see how things are? And they find it all set in order, but faith isn't there. The word of God isn't there. It's been done in weak power. He says he's going to go get some of his pals that are more evil than he is. And the condition of that man is going to be worse because of the effort of these godless exorcists. They remove the spirit, the evil spirit, without addressing the condition of the heart that made it susceptible to them to begin with.
And so we have God's word, and it is the manner in which we resist the devil. It is not through some foolish speech. It is not through arrogant abuse of Satan or by just ignoring him as though he does not, is not who he is. We recognize his presence, we recognize his power and authority, and we prepare ourselves. As any soldier would do, what do you do? Well, they don't hand you a weapon on the way out of the vehicle to say, here's a weapon you've never seen, here, engage the enemy. Any of you veterans, that's what they did to you, right? That's what they did, right? As you got out to engage the enemy, they say, oh, here's a new weapon, try it out. No, that's what they do all that training for, and they may, you got to blindfold, you know, the whole thing, you blindfold, take down your weapon and build it back up, and you've got to know how it works, you're going to, You're going to practice, 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 practice with it. Why? It becomes an extension of your person for battle. And that is true whether that weapon was, in the ancient times, swords and bows, um, or whether it's our modern weaponry. The sophistication of the weapon is not what's at issue here. It's familiarity. It's that you are adept at using it. And so, if you just have some way of, well, I kind of know, that's a, I recognize the Bible when I hear it. Well, I recognize a sword when I see it. Doesn't mean I know how to use it. I might even have some idea of how to use it. I know which end to hold. Don't hold the sharp end, hold this end. I have that much knowledge but you put me up against a swordsman even holding the right hand, and I'm a dead man. You see, it's not just a primitive understanding of God's word. It's not just a general understanding. It is a practice knowledge of it, a skill in God's word. That every temptation comes, I have the answer because I am adept at using this weapon. To defend myself. When you go out and think you can handle it on your own, you are speaking evil of one who has authority by making light of that authority as if you in your own pride and arrogance can manage. And you're the foolish little wildebeest that walks up to a lion curious and smells it before it takes off your head. Be careful that we do not disregard a very powerful opponent, a very powerful enemy in his realm where we move and work. To do so is arrogance, and it is a manner of speaking evil of. To lessen his prowess of destroying Christian lives. I can't think of anything I could do in regards to your engagement with the enemy 
that would be more disastrous than to tell you the enemy can just be walked over. No coach that I know of ever wants to lose a game because they underestimated their opponent and weren't prepared. And yet we do it in the Christian community all the time. In the manner we speak of the evil one and the demonic, as though they are cowering in a corner just waiting to be stomped on. They are prowling. They are on the hunt looking for just such foolish Christians as these dreamers or so-called Christians that speak evil of that and they don't really understand it. If someone as powerful and with such authority as Michael the Archangel is cautious and is completely dependent upon the word of the Lord to rebuke Satan. With all the authority that is at his disposal, should not we reconsider ourselves a little bit? And that's the question that Jude asks. This is the example of speaking evil of glorious ones, of authorities. Now, can we take that realm... And bring it even farther. And I believe we have every expectation of doing that from Jude. Can we narrow this down? Okay, I'm not going to speak evil. I'm not going to take lightly the spiritual warfare that is going on around us in, this, in, the, in the realm of Satan and his demons and, and their power. I'm going to respect that enough to prepare myself for it and engage it very cautiously and always on a defensive manner. That is, I'm not going to go out there and look for trouble. You're never called to do that. You're not called to, to walk into Satan's camp and take him on. Jesus Christ does that. He did that. He has accomplished that. We are rather called to go in <laughs> and try to rescue people. And I don't know, I've seen some rescue operations. I think Israel's rescue operations are just incredible when they go in and do it. And uh, I was a big student of those back in the 80s of how Israel engaged and rescued some of their own people uh, in just incredible accounts of not only courage, but of, of, of uh, great strategy that says we don't want to engage the whole enemy. We just want to go in and rescue a few people out of their clutches. And that's essentially what we do with the gospel. We're not there to fight Satan with the gospel. We don't have to do that. That will happen at the end of this age. This is his age here. He is free to prowl here as a lion with that kind of authority. But we are out there to rescue his, his prey. Very different Strategy, once you understand that. We're not here to try to go into the teeth of the enemy, but rather we are trying to, to deliver those that are under his sway. So we come down now to another layer, though, 
another layer of the glorious ones. And I made that statement early on that if you have authority, you carry a piece of God's glory. For it is God who assigns that authority. And that goes, as I said, within the home. It is obvious that God has established that mom and dad are the authority over their children. That, hu- that the father, the husband, I'm sorry, is the authority over the wife. That we have these authorities in place from the smallest social unit of the family all the way up to the kings of nations. God says, I am the one who is the raiser up and the bringer down of these authorities. And thus they all are representatives of God's glory. Even Satan himself talks about that and it says that um, I have this authority and I will give you and their glory. He understands that his authority over the demonic and over this place at this time has an aspect of glory to it. There's a glory involved. So, where are the authorities? The dignitaries is how the New King James Version uses it. Where is the authority? Where are the glorious ones? Where are there these facets of authority that we need to respond to? And they are all presented in God's Word. And these dreamers oppose them and speak evil of them by denigrating that authority, by saying that that authority doesn't really exist that it is something you can rebel against without consequence, that we can um, just disregard it, just as foolishly someone would disregard the power and authority of the evil one. It is the same speaking evil that would disregard the authority that God has invested in parents, in husbands, in pastors, in mayors, in presidents, in bosses, in teachers, Um, God has invested some authority there. And we have a responsibility to recognize that we are called upon, even if we disagree with that authority, to respect that authority. And I think one of the most powerful examples of that is David. Responds to his king. He is the anointed king, but he responds to his king by saying, I can't lift my hand against you because you're the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to speak against you. And essentially, he comes to the same conclusion, let the Lord judge between you and me. And we have several Psalms, um, Psalm 35, Psalm 43, uh, where David talks about this, and he says, the Lord is my refuge. These Seek me without a cause. I didn't do anything against the king, and yet my life is is in jeopardy. He hunts me. They want to destroy me. But the Lord is my refuge because I recognize that this king has the right to do what he's doing. He's the king. I'm not going to rebel against that. I'm not going to speak evil. I'm not going to lift a finger against that. And when I did do one disrespectful thing, I cut off the corner of one of his garments in secret. What was David's response? Oh man, I should never have done that. How disrespectful of me. And it says that he was sorry he had done that. 
What did his, al, what did his fellow soldiers want to do to him? Oh, the Lord has delivered him in your hand. Kill him right now and you'll become king. No, I can't do that. He is the Lord's anointed. If the Lord wants him dead, the Lord's going to have to do it, and I'm not going to be the one to do it. That's an act of rebellion against my own king to kill him. Is it the practice of others? Yes, but it's not the practice of a people of faith who trust in the Lord and have that wisdom of his glory that every authority has a piece of God's glory there. And to act against that authority is to act against the glory of God. To disrespect it. And, and when we see the speak evil of here in Jude 9, put in the word to disrespect, disregard those authorities. And yes, James says, your tongue is the rudder of your life. So yes, start with your words and recognize that if your words are rebellious against those authorities, pretty soon so will be your actions. So words matter. I think another great example is Daniel who, and by the way, this is David and Saul. Remember what Saul did? He killed the priests of God. He had them killed, murdered. Um, as far as I can tell, no president has done that to you, to, to, uh, to my class rounded us up and had us murdered. Be careful. Others will say you have the right to speak against the authorities in your life. And that is wrong. You can identify them. I'll tell you who Satan is and I'll tell you how evil he is. I'll tell you how powerful he is. I'll tell you that. They need to be identified. And I, you can identify the evil that authorities are doing. You can say that's not right. But to disregard the authority they carry is of a different nature. It is a nature of rebellion that these dreamers want to draw us into. And so on a human level, we have these authorities. We, we understand this, the, the, the level of the angelic uh, things going on that Jude gives us an example of. And then we come down to this human authorities and there's still one more, even more specific layer I want to get to. Because remember what I said, that every authority that God establishes is a piece of his glory right there. There is another authority that every person carries that God put there. And that is the authority that comes with being in the image and likeness of God. Why do we honor and respect life, human life? Because we recognize that there is a piece of God's glory. For that individual carries the image and likeness of God. Yes, it was horribly stained and abused by sin to the point that God didn't want to claim it anymore, and so everyone was... So Adam's son wasn't in the image of God, but in the image of Adam. But yet the root of that image of your father and your forefathers goes all the way back to the image of God placed in Adam. And I have sought to teach here that that is not anything about your brain or 
how your body functions. It has something to do with authority. God has given you authority. That he didn't give the angels. He didn't give any other part of creation. He has given you the authority. That is why as soon as God created man in his image, in his likeness, the next thing you find is God saying to man, you're in charge. You take care of the garden. You keep it. You name the animals. You do all these things. You make your choices. You choose whom you're going to serve. You choose whether you're going to listen to the serpent or to me. You choose. I'm granting you the authority to choose. To exercise your will, whether for me or against me, uh, to, to, to subdue the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Fill the earth. Fill it. Subdue it. You've got the authority to do this. It is frightening where we have taken that level of authority that God has granted us. Um, and how we try to manipulate his creation in these days. Um, But we have, to some degree, the authority to do so. You have the authority to decide. And even sinful men, even atheists, recognize it. Even those who reject the, the existence of God recognize the distinction of man. And thus, they all understand that when a regime comes in and wants to oppress and force a belief system or something upon people, whether it be slavery or whether it be a religious set of tenets, and, and wants to force it upon it, that it is, it, it is wrong. Why is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Because every human carries a little piece of God's glory in the form of personal authority. Now, we can abuse it the other direction as well. Just as men try to abuse it and try to crush the will of men and and put it under the, the heel of their boot and try to force people to believe what they cannot believe or shouldn't believe or don't want to believe, and that goes true for whether what you're trying to force them to believe is true or not isn't relevant. Okay, the crusaders are wrong. Just as wrong as the, the Muslim crusaders were wrong. They were crusaders, well, we just don't want to call them that. Just as wrong as this for Muslims say, do you believe in Allah? No, bang. So it was, if you believe in Jesus, no, bang. Both are wrong. Because they are not acknowledging a piece of God's glory that is put upon every man that you have the authority to believe what you choose to believe, to do what you choose to do, but you're going to have to live with the consequences of your own choices. And we have a natural inclination to understand that. It has also been abused the other direction, though, hasn't it? That we think that this little piece of authority that we have gives us the right to raise ourselves up to every other authority. And yes, when, when that little piece of authority is not surrendered to God, it will always go in this direction of rebellion. That you can't tell me what to do, Mom. Or worse, the babysitter. You are my boss! Yes, I am. 
Why? Because your parents put me in charge of you. And the glory that goes with it. But the responsibility is there as well. So we see that from an individual level that we have responsibility to recognize and that's why it, it, the Bible in James that we, we had studied last week, it says you can't you know, speak evil of this and claim to be giving God glory. You can't have good water and bad water coming out of the same spigot. You can't speak evil of the creation without speaking evil of the creator. And Don't you see that you are violating that little piece of glory that he put into every man? Now do not confuse what I just said with saying that there's a spark of divinity in you. That is an error that you can flame into fire and become little gods. I am saying that you have been lent authority by God God, who is your king, and you should recognize him as that, to choose your way, either in rebellion or in surrender to him and the other authorities he's established. You will answer to him for those choices you have the right to make. But just as you have the right to make that choice, he has the right to judge you according to your choice. Remember, there's a difference between a right to choose and a right to rebel. Choosing to rebel is a bad choice. There's a consequence. Choosing to do wrong, there's going to be some consequences. There's going to be a judgment. You have within you the capacity to do that. God has granted it to you. And that is why we are moral agents. We, are, we, are, we have... We know right from wrong. We have that capacity. Uh, even before we knew right from wrong, we were moral agents. For we had a choice. Even before we knew right from wrong, we had a choice. Even before your children know the difference between right and wrong, they have a choices, don't they? They make those choices. And so we do not speak evil of mankind, the individual, and his right to choose, and we can shake our heads and say, oh, boy, bad choice. Lord, rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. The authorities that are in our lives on a human scale, we can look at them and say, well, they're not leading me. They're not, and we can complain against them, but we're complaining against God, and it can very quickly bring us to rebellion. And that's the power when Peter says, hey, you want to win your, your disobedient husband? Do it by not being a disobedient wife. Your husband's disobeying God's word. How do you get him his attention? By, not by trying to disobey him equally. Not by trying to be as bad as him. You got a husband not obeying the truth? How do you get his attention? By making... Totally different choices of surrender, of submission, of righteousness, of I'm not going to say a word against you. Without a word, you'll win them. Because if we begin to challenge 
that authority, that piece of glory that God has put in our life, in that person, we will soon move in our hearts and in our lives against it. And ultimately, all of this comes down to the fact that once we begin attacking little pieces of God's glory where it has been distributed amongst us that we can see it and should be glorifying God in it, when we begin to move against it up that ladder, eventually, who are we going to be moving against? God himself. And we will become part and parcel with the evil one. We just lift up his will against the will of God. He says, I will exalt myself. And that's what these dreamers are doing. Why do they want you to challenge all these levels of authority and every level of authority? Because ultimately, they want to exalt themselves. And to exalt themselves, they call upon you to denigrate everyone else. And this is what creeps into the church. And it creeps into the church. And I believe the reason Jude says speaking evil is because that's where it first manifests itself. It first manifests in the way we talk. How do we talk about authorities that are over us? How do we talk about them? In private. How do we think about them? How do we speak? In our families. Within our churches, how do we speak from pulpits about authorities? How do we react when authority does what we know to be wrong? Do you make statements like, that's not my president? That's rebellion. There's no surprise in what we're seeing in our society in rebellion against this president because the church led the charge against the last president. Maybe not with violence, but why wouldn't it lead to violence once it's in the hands, that kind of rebellious speech in the hands of lost individuals? The church was doing violence against our last president in her words and attitudes. Why should we be distraught that the ungodly and the unchurched are now violently opposing and rebelling against this president with the same words, sometimes the same words that were heard in churches three, four, five, six years ago. We are called to recognize the glory of God. And one of the expressions of God's glory that's a, to all men is the authority you carry in you to choose to rule the earth. And the authorities that are over you in your home, in your church, in your society, at your workplace, don't speak evil of them. You can recognize they do wrong things, but you do too. Poor choices. So that's why the Bible says pray for them that despitefully use you. Some of you go, that's just like work. (laughs) Pray for them. Don't speak evil against them. Don't pray against them. I'm really tired of hearing people praying against people. Pray for them. 
Do not disregard or think that the demonic and the satanic is something to be trifled with. Not in your speech and not in your attitude. Be prepared. Know not just the enemy, but know your weapon. Get to know your Bible better so you will be prepared to let God's word rebuke Satan because you cannot, in your strength and, and braininess, understanding, wisdom of humanity, you cannot stand toe-to-toe to him. Know your word, the word of God. And ultimately, all of this is an expression of worshiping God and his authority over all. Jesus says, the Lord is God, him alone. Worship the Lord and him alone. And every representation of his authority as it trickles down to us and into your very hearts. Do not speak evil of such glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for this instruction and its breadth as well as its specificity. And Lord, we confess before you that we have allowed such attitudes to sneak in. And to bring out a rebellious spirit within us that doesn't need much to be fanned into flame. And Lord, forgive us. Smother it in us. That we might see your glory and give you the glory for it. In our reaction and responses, in our prayer for those in authority. Lord, we do pray for them today for our bosses, for our teachers, for our politicians and authorities there, for authorities within our church and, Lord, within our home. None of these are perfect people. Some of them do not even claim your name at all and some falsely. Lord, you have established them, and for this we cannot cease to give you praise, and we pray for them, that you might give them wisdom, convict them of their sin, rebuke them where they are wrong. Lord, do that through your word, through the circumstances of our life, and through individuals around them. Lord, however, whatever mechanism, Lord, we put them And that authority is you. That if you need to send them to eat grass like an ox for seven years, that you would do so. And that we would still serve them as our authority, even in that condition. Lord, may you find such a spirit among these people. And that it might penetrate and be extended to all your people. That we might see those pieces of glory all around us and never speak evil of them. 
but choose to glorify your name in this evil place until your coming. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.